0: Hello and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Keisha Kijano talks to Jeremy Ferran. Jeremy is a leader in data analytics with over 10 years of experience across roles at BAI Communications, now Boulder Networks, and now CEO of his own firm, Blue Flag Consulting. Specialising in data and cloud architecture. Over to Jeremy and Keisha. Thank you for thank you for joining us today. What we've kind of heard from other people, you're someone who's sometimes been described as, you know, the data guy. Could you please introduce yourself to the Label sessions audience, and kind of almost help us understand
1: why you're known as the data guy? So my name is Jeremy Forn from Blue Flag Consulting. One of the reasons I think. I'm probably referred to as the data guys because often I'm like, well, let me see the data. So when questions come up, you know, can we gain this insight? Can we automate this process? You know, my first response is like, always, let's look at the data. And I really enjoy getting my hands dirty uh, and trying to find needles and haystacks. So I, I think that's probably where the, the title comes from.
0: Do you think that's a fair enough? title to have to give you do you take that as a compliment
1: i would have preferred um people's most handsome man but um data guy is a close second
0: but you're not you don't kind of you don't wish that it
1: was something else you're like that that makes sense that Uh, just i guess i guess that's close enough to what um how i how i see sort of my value in uh most of these types of endeavors is kind of relentless wanting to you know solve the problem and and dive as, as deep as possible. So data guy, I think, holds up because you're kind of like, oh, if there's um, some analytics to find or build or anomaly detection, trend analysis, all that kind of stuff, you'd give it to the data guy. But yeah, I guess, um, I don't know, problem solver would be <laughs> would be good, something in that uh, in that region. That
0: makes sense. Big data holds immense potential. It can be very easily overwhelming for some businesses. Um, I guess that's where they ask you for help. Um, I guess and the question is, what steps do you recommend to help leaders you know, extract the maximum value from their data assets and kind of apply insights aff- effectively to their, their operations,
1: effectively being the opportunity here? So now is an amazing time to be in data um, because the tooling has come a long way in the past ten years. The barrier to entry has been drastically reduced, so you can get up and running. Um, you know, starting to store and analyze data for almost nothing, right? And then um, as you you know pour things into um, data warehouses or data lakes, um, then you can start looking and seeing where the value, uh, where there may be value in the information that you're collecting. So I often say like more haystacks doesn't necessarily find you more needles, right? But if you're looking for the needle, you got to start going through the haystack. So um, for most companies, it's just getting started, looking, collecting data, and then taking on the attitude that you're going to iterate and improve. So day one, you're not going to solve the problem. You're going to collect information and maybe um, what your data pipeline looks like evolves over two or three years as you know, you learn more uh, about the data analytics, that kind of stuff that you have available to you.
0: What do you think makes you different from the other big
1: data types out there? Oh, the other big data guys. Yeah, There's like eight of us in the world, probably a few more. I, I don't think I have a single uh, tool set. A lot of times it is what is the right tool for the job. And the great thing about computer science is most of the patterns and concepts have been solved. Right? There's only so many sort algorithms you don't need to reinvent the wheel so a lot of times it's um identifying that the problem that we're facing scale frequency complexity um and then looking at best practices how these problems have been um have been solved um uh empirically right and then applying that and and a lot of times that means learning new technologies learning new um, tech stacks, database engines, which is typically my one of my favorite parts of an engagement. So I guess that would make, we have a lot of like um, tools in the tool belt that we'll pull out that, you know, Elasticsearch, Influx, a lot of AWS engines, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's about what is the right tool for the job. So I guess that might make us a little different, blue flag consulting.
0: Within kind of, I know that you sit in this so the. Data, the technology space, and not necessarily on what you're saying about tools, but just kind of thinking about what you kind of you read about in your industry. Is there anything that you think is overhyped at the moment? And do you think is there, is there anything that you think is that you think is interesting but isn't really being picked up by the mainstream?
1: It's so trendy to say ML is is overhyped. Machine learning is has incredible potential. And it is the future, right? It is, you know, turn of the century electricity. Like it is, it really is the future. Um, but some of the places where it will sh- fall short is integrating into business processes. There, there's going to be, there's going to need to be people who come in and say, this is how we take advantage of this new technology. So uh, ML machine learning itself is not hype, but aspects of it, I'd say, are. The thing that I, um, the two big trends that I see is everything as code. Um, so right now you have you know infrastructure as code was a big trend a couple of years ago. Um, I think you'll start to see um, much, much more of this documentation as code, um, business process as code um, because it easily allows you to um, create repeatable systems, that are also able to be tracked in software version control systems like Git, GitHub, uh, GitLab. So being able to increment, roll back when you need to, do diffs, all of that kind of stuff, you take that value and bring it to um, other sort of aspects of business, right? So I think that's gonna be the big thing. And then internal tooling. Now that you can rapidly build out um, software application stacks, I think the companies that build out tools that do specifically what they need in um, an automate automated and repeatable way um, are going to have big advantages over those who don't. And not just taking products off the, the shelf and sort of you know customizing them like we use Excel this way. it's no we've we have this um, onboarding process, like customer onboarding process with these discrete systems like our CRM, maybe a web page billing, all of that kind of stuff. And we're building out you know, state machines that in- ensure the process is automated as much as possible from start to end. I, I think that's going to be the big trend.
0: Would you, so let's say if kind of you're, you're in a room of C-suite of you know the biggest companies in the world, is that the kind of message that you'd be giving out to them of this is what you should be thinking about?
1: Yes. I mean, if you look at any business, the higher you go up, um, the less tasks the, the that people are doing and the more um, the more their role is about decision making right And typically tasks are like you know some sort of like labor commodity or something like that. So you're you're doing something you want it to be consistent. Um, so w- however much you can automate that, or the amount that you automate that is the same amount. you relieve staff from having to manage these tasks or um, uh, fix fix human errors, you know that kind of stuff, and you allow them to do more decision making. And that's where you get that um, that's where you get that advantage. So if you look at any company, right? you look at whatever they're doing, whether it's a service, they're selling products, um, they' that's how you could separate all, of the work is by tasks that need to be completed and decision-making and they need excellence in both, but by automating, you get better um, tasks, completion, efficiency, all of that kind of stuff. And you get the advantage of freeing up people to make better decisions. Right. So I think they, they go hand in hand, but internal tooling, that's the (laughs) the game changer.
0: Kind of going out from there though, with data-driven decision-making. With that becoming always more prevalent, how do you suggest that leaders strike a balance between data analysis and also human intuition?
1: For the most part, intuition is informed by experience, right? And there's a tremendous amount of value in experience. So then what you really want to do is go and test those intuitions and ensure you have data that will either um, confirm or inform about how the, the rubber actually meets the road there. You need to be honest about what the data shows. I think a lot of times we have, um, we might have intuitions or theories about what's happening. You get the data back and you, you think, oh, maybe the, the data is not accurate or this isn't a good sample. I think you, if you're going to um, be data driven, that also means that you have to be willing to take in what the data is telling you. Even that's when it's pointing to you know inefficiency, some sort of delinquency, or something like that.
0: Out of curiosity, when you get the raw data, are you ever not thinking, "Am I going to interpret this wrong?
1: How does that work?" Sure. So if we're talking about raw data, let's use an example. Uh, maybe your uh, you know you have a Wi-Fi network, for example. And you want to collect information about um, how much people are using the Wi-Fi network, maybe where in the building um, dev- people maybe with devices that are that are using it, right? You start pulling the information. You're probably looking at like some inconsistencies and some standardization that you need to do, typically referred to as ETL. So you need to take that information and refine it, right? And part of the refining process is to validate it. So that when you see things like, um, you know, there's 12 devices, you know, joined at two in the morning, you go in, well, where are these 12 devices? There shouldn't be anyone in the building, things like that. So you can um, start mapping what the information is telling you to the real world experience that you're having. And then the larger the data, the more discrete the different inputs are or the different systems. The the more challenging that becomes. So it's a process of going and validating what you're collecting. You you need to do that before you take any information as gospel. Um, too often you may get down the road, and you know you have some great insight, and and uh, you know you you make you're making business decisions based on it, only to find out that that was based on false assumptions baked into the data um, at very uh, initial stages. So that's, the validation is a, a very big part. Um, and then once you get that data and it's validated, you know, you're confident in the quality of the data, that's when you start looking for where you might gain insights. And it's not always clear wh- where that's going to come from, right? It, there's a lot of times that you start to see correlations that you weren't necessarily anticipating. And when you get very strong correlations, there can be a lot of potential, right? To, I guess to bring that back to, to bring that to a real world example, you know, we uh, one of the projects I worked on years ago was for Wi-Fi in the Toronto subway system, and then there was an extremely strong correlation between the amount of people uh, on a platform and the amount of devices connected to Wi-Fi. As you can imagine, if there's no people, there's not a lot of devices. If there's a tremendous amount of people, there, there's there's um, a lot of Wi-Fi connections. Um, so taking that. Um, We could start to build some analytics, which would predict if the um, subway platform is overcrowded and the rail operator would need to do something, an intervention or something to disperse people or route buses or something to that effect. Now, when you build a Wi-Fi system, we didn't build a Wi-Fi system to detect when there's overcrowding in the subway station, but the correlation was so strong, it allowed us to action and um, build out a solution for the rail operator. Your real detective
0: work as well you really put that on the cv as well detective
1: <laughs> yeah it's really fun diving into data and um you know teasing out patterns and doing preventative maintenance condition based maintenance trend analysis anomaly detection <laughs> i don't know how fun it sounds but trust me it, it actually is really fun when you start to see these trends because you become informed and you can take actions. you can solve problems before they happen or provide insights which were very challenging maybe to um, ascertain in other places with that i know you've worked
0: with a lot of places that have kind of real world impact and you worked in some you know very regulated industries with you know that need that such as kind of you said transit but you've also thinking about healthcare, care whether you know changes that you make have
1: real-world consequences
0: yeah i guess with that what advice would you give to leaders working in these sort of regulated industries you want to make change happen, but they really sit within sort of risk-averse organizations where they can't really push it that far.
1: That's a great question. I would say technology only goes so far. You have to know the customer, and you have to be intimately aware of um, their privacy concerns and what the consequences of failure are. Right um, in the train industry, um, you know they they're not they're a few generations behind technology because. They need time um, to ensure that technology is safe. Because if they they put the stuff on the train and uh, things go wrong, you know, there's people's lives are at stake, right? The same thing with uh, hospitals, obviously. Um, so it's being very aware, and then um, generally it's um, about delivering wins in those spaces. So not necessarily the technology, but based on but but selling products and services based on what you'll accomplish and making sure that um whatever you set out to do is what you deliver so um you can focus less on uh where where if it's more of a technology company you know you're giving them the specs of equipment you're selling them and that translates to you know what they need and they understand yeah we need you know so many cores in our cluster and and so much storage and that kind of stuff where um in more in government or um, regulated industries. It's about, if this is the problem you have, I will solve it. And it a lot of times it's inconsequential to them what the backing technology is. You might even need to pivot a few times. You might need to do um, extend the statement of work beyond um, what was originally agreed because you're not there to sell technology or software. You're there to um, deliver wins. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast,
0: for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To
1: find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. Do you
0: have a preference in talking to either the tech guys who you know they're going to understand it from the get go you just you could talk your language or do you like the storytelling the pitching the this is what it actually
1: needs talking to technology people is um where i get a lot of just feedback and a lot of suggestions around tooling how solutions were solved so that's always very enjoyable and there is something about t- selling technology to technology experts where you know, it's sort of cut to the chase in a lot of ways. You can you can just say uh, they understand. that They're asking questions, which um, when you explain to them the design decisions you've made, then that their confidence goes up, and and that can be established fairly quickly. If there's a, if you're going to buy a car, and the person selling the car says, well, it's got one of those great wheel things on that side of the car, which will allow you to point the car in different... You kind of know, like, okay, this guy might not be a car expert. But if you ask uh, about the engine and they go into a um, tremendous amount of detail, that just raises that confidence level. So um, that's a good aspect of dealing with people who are technically proficient. The um, other side of that, where you're... Um, Maybe selling more of the results. It takes a lot longer to build that confidence, a, a lot, lot longer. But once you do establish it, it it's generally a much longer relationship, right? And um, they they put more trust in the decisions you make down the road. So it's sort of um, short term versus long term, right? Uh, when when somebody's very technically proficient, they oftentimes want the latest and greatest. And that means you're competing and, and, and all the time. Whereas if it's an organization that's more risk averse, like a government organization, once you establish that uh, long-term trust, they will just want to come to you with more and more problems for you to solve. And that has less of a, a reliance on the actual technology stacks that you're delivering.
0: So you have a huge amount of experience in... In travel and transit, you've worked kind of quite a lot of few projects within that space. Um, you can you bring to life for us some sort of tech innovations in the transit sector. As of what
1: what have you been most excited about? There is a big trend to make cities more efficient, smarter, and more efficient. And um, that there is as a result, there is an immense thirst for transit data. Which can be used for things like um, journey analytics, um, uh, congestion modeling, um, various uh, simulations, all all that kind of stuff. And that that was traditionally very expensive endeavors. But now, you know, what, what you have, what we're doing this podcast with, right, like 20 years ago or 30 years ago, would be considered like a, you know, a huge computing cluster or something. Um, so, the the ability for more people to be involved in transit analytics, like the barrier to entry just keeps going down. Um, there's, uh, we've done some work with the Transit Analytics Lab here in Toronto, where, um, you know, we've taken some data and provided to them, and their postgrad students have, you know, have just created a wealth of research um, to solve real world problems like um, optimizing, uh, commute transit and that kind of stuff. So I think that's really exciting. Um, more of the, more of these sort of research, more data becoming available. And then that data getting into the hands of people who want to do research. And then eventually that will get into the market so that rail operators can, and, and transit operators can bring that into their procedures. It's, it's a long process, but that's starting that's becoming more prevalent. Um, if you go to a more a lot of these um transit conferences before were based on new hardware, you know, new signaling. And now there's a trend towards new services, new analytics, better customer experience, so on and so forth.
0: On the other side, on the flip side of that though, what are some unique challenges of tech adoption in the transit center?
1: It's a long road. It takes a, a long time. That's one of the the challenges. you You can't just show up and start installing servers on a train, right? It takes, um, a lot of time. It's, it's a challenge, but it's very rewarding when you're successful in the end. Um, there's also a lot of proprietary protocols, you know, train signaling, um, all that kind of stuff is things that you're not generally exposed to most, you know, software developers might never come around, come across a lawn network or, um, you know, very, some of these um, various proprietary systems and stuff like that. So it's a great learning opportunity. When we had a discussion before, you
0: were talking about how, was it like your first or your second job? You were staying up really late hours because you had to wait for these trains to not be running to install the, the system. <laughs>
1: One of my first jobs was to upgrade servers that have been running on a uh, national fleet to, to provide internet access and a satellite dish which was the internet downlink um, that malfunctioned so we we're switching from satellite to 3g that'll give you a sense of when this was and um, the idea was we will build the servers in the day and switch them out at night right and uh it turned out we didn't account for food or sleep which <laughs> it turned out to be one of the <laughs> turned out to be a, a challenge and uh, you know you wake up with a, a server in your hand or flux on the floor or something like that so it was it was an experience it was a memory
0: i don't think many people consider they've done that in their life so i think that's that's pretty cool <laughs> i like that straw i mean we've asked all the the longer questions but i'm sure kind of the the audience wants to know a bit about a bit about you a bit about you know who jeremy is so we've wow. got a, we have a few quick fire questions as well okay this
1: is the lightning round
0: yep Question number one, can you describe your desk
1: for our audience? Yeah, I generally try and keep my desk surface clean. And I will have three monitors, my MacBook Pro, uh, a wide monitor, and then a portrait monitor. The portrait's a lot for code or logs or that kind of stuff. Three monitors, right? Little bougie. Yeah, uh, but then you also have so seen the whiteboard behind you as well. So you oh, and I, I have to have a lot of whiteboards. I'm I'm one of these people who can't talk without a whiteboard. So the desk is that was from that was the prep for this call. Most useful websites or people to follow
0: to stay on the pulse of your industry. Uh,
1: I really like the Register, that has uh, a lot of general computer news and then uh, a lot of subcategories in there. Uh, which are really great um, for machine learning. Uh, I subscribe to the Rundown, uh, which is great, and then um, some various podcasts. I really like Go Time. I'm a big uh, Go programmer, so I really like that. Um, and uh, Python Bytes, where they uh, deliver uh, Python news once a week.
0: In another life, in another
1: life, what would your career be? Action star, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I don't know. I mean, when I first started my career, I started in real estate. Both my parents were real estate agents, so it was, you know, you're taking up the family business. Um, at open houses, I would be showing people web pages I built of the house. I'd be look at the bedroom, and they're like, "We would like to look at the bedroom," you know. So there was that was probably in another life, I would be a uh, uh, real estate mogul or something to that effect number one agent kind of thing but uh the call to to programming software computer science was just definitely beginning. it's uh it's my passion
0: how would you describe your your leadership style
1: i lead like i follow in that um the people who i respect the people who when there is a problem, they get their hands dirty. When there is a push to get work, they're the first one there. You know that' the leading by example. And um, that's what I try to do. Um, if there's you know tasks on the team that are challenging, it's like let's all let's all dive in, we'll do this together and um, if somebody needs to be up late. Um, the other thing which I do too is I try not to give people answers. And so when it was when when people asked, I'll say, I'd like you to build a solution that that does this. Um, a lot of times they'll say, well, what should I use? What is the database engine or some, something like that? I don't know. I'm excited to see what you choose and why. And I think that takes, the, there's a bit of an adjustment that happens when people first join the T because we're usually a little bit more conditioned to be, here are the requirements, Here what I want you to build, here's how to do it. Um, as opposed to you go figure it out and then tell us why and how you've made those decisions. At first, it's daunting, but then once you get used to it, it's really exciting because everything becomes a challenge or a puzzle and you really get to flex your your muscles, your uh, uh, problem-solving skills, right? And then, which is what I like to do. I guess going from leadership to almost the ultimate
0: leader, if you are a benevolent dictator... What would your first,
1: what would the first thing you'd do? Well, first order that you would give? You've heard of military service, right? You know, and and mandatory military service. I think there should be mandatory uh, service service. So um, you have to spend at least a year in the service industry. I think that that goes a long way to building compassion and patience and understanding. Um, If everyone did that for a year, I think society would be like 2% better right
0: is this kind of you get to pick military service or service industry or just
1: no military service everyone does i believe if everybody spent in a year a year in the service industry there would be no need for military anymore everyone would just get along they'd be patient so two birds one stone I, I, this feels so ridiculous This feels very ridiculous
0: I guess that's all these quick five questions. I feel silly and I particularly love that question as well because, I know, you get to see where someone's heads at We'll have one more for you On a scale of 1 to 10 How weird are you?
1: I would say that uh, I'm weird In that when I'm done work I want to code, build engines Play with hardware, solder and so um, I don't know. I don't think that's particularly weird um, that people's career is also their passion. Uh, but I guess that's the weirdest thing about me. What's the weirdest thing about? What are you on this scale? Give me give me a reference point from one to ten. What are what are you?
0: I guess it kind of really depends on what, where you take it. I a lot of people have said you know it depends on the situation or if you ask friends or kids they would say this, but for me personally, it depends on the situation. It depends if I'm
1: at work or a party. I would say I am a seven point eight six. That is because I'm a, like a little odd. I'm not afraid to like uh, I'm 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 open about the things that make me a little weird, I guess. And then I'm oddly lucky, like like lucky. That's what people who know me say. He's like really lucky, which is which is odd
0: so good no, no, I mean, no takes these You're like, I'll take that.
1: Works out really well. Just, just general luck.
0: I guess. Thank you so, so very much for being on the podcast.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast, no matter your platform of choice, and of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.